F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby remains such a fluid and endurable literary masterpiece that one can look to the three movie adaptations in 1949, 1974, and 2013 to see that nobody has a definitive interpretive take. Here, for example, is the famous scene in the Plaza Hotel where Gatsby confronts Tom Buchanan. Why don't you leave her alone, old sport? Why not let her alone, old sport? You're the one who wanted to come to town. Why not let her alone, old sport? It's a great expression of yours, isn't it? What is? That old sport business. Where'd you pick it up? That certainly is a great expression of yours. What is it? Oh, that old sport business. Where'd you pick that up? That's a great expression of yours, isn't it? What is Old sport. Where'd you pick it up? So that's three movies, and none of the actors can say the lines in quite the same way. Much as James Joyce boasted that Ulysses would keep scholars busy for a hundred years, Fitzgerald scholars continue to flock to the great novel. My name is Edward Champion, and this is The Bat Segundo Show. Between Rebecca Mead's My Life in Middlemarch and Susan Schillinglaw's forthcoming On Reading the Grapes of Wrath, 2014 is turning out to be quite a year for books about reading books. But Sarah Churchwell's Careless People tackles The Great Gatsby with an approach somewhere between the avid reader and the obsessive scholar. The vivacious and jam-packed conversation you are about to hear reveals that Gatsby is so rich that just about any interpretation is possible. Okay, so I'm here with Sarah Churchwell, who is most recently the author of Careless People. Sarah, how are you doing? I'm really well, thanks. How are you? Pretty pretty good. I'm, I'm really jazzed up because only a couple of days ago, you forced me to reread The Great Gatsby, and it was still great, all <laughs> after four times. So, you know, I, I, I guess, have you ever gotten sick of that book? Or? No, I really haven't. That's why I, I wrote a book that's kind of a tribute to it, and yeah. I got I got to live with it for five years. I got to read it over and over and over and over. How many times have you read it? I don't know, um, because I read it, <laughs> well, I, I've read it sequentially, you know, at least half a dozen times, and then, but also I was, you know, going in and out of it. And sure. So all told, probably hundreds of times. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, anyway, let's start with the marvelous year of 1922, the year in which uh, the book is set, The Great Gatsby, and the year in which both The Wasteland and Ulysses were published. You point out that scholars have used the reference to a wasteland during that one description of the ash heaps as the smoking gun that Fitzgerald intended Gatsby as a literary homage to that particular year. But Fitzgerald was also to note in his 10 best books I have ever read that Ulysses is a great novel of the future. So what is the true source, really, of the 1922 setting, and to what degree is it a mistake to assign a kind of explicit literary interpretation or homage uh, to either Eliot or Joyce? I mean, I think there are a couple of other meanings to 1922, which, of course, is the year that Fitzgerald sets Gatsby in. And yes, I think he is tipping his hat to those great writers of yeah. 1922 and to those two great works in particular. It's also the year that um, the first English translation of Swan's Way came out. So Proust is also making his way um, into that year. But um, it's also the year that Scott and Zelda moved to Long Island and began the parties that would inspire the novel. It's also, it was in 1922, in the summer that uh, Fitzgerald wrote to his editor, Max Perkins, yes. announcing that he wanted to write the novel that would become Gatsby. So I think in his head, there were a lot of reasons why 1922 was the right year to set the novel. Huh. Did he ever toy around with other years? That he did, actually, in drafts. He, he, he wrote 1921, he wrote 1923. Yeah. So he always knew he wanted it to be a modern novel. He wrote it in 1924. So it was always going to be the recent past. Um, and then he finally settles on 1922. And we can only speculate as to why that is. Maybe it was totally
totally random, sure, but uh, sure. but it doesn't seem like it was. And then he went back and he tried to adjust the math and to make sure that everything worked out for it to be set in 1922. Yeah, he had this really terrible thing about double digits, 13-13 at the end. That's sad. Yeah. I, I was really bummed out at the end when Fitzgerald is on the decline. I'm uh, like, oh, come on, Scott. You I can know. do it. Don't, don't let the world beat you down. It's so sad, but yeah. the world did beat him down. And exactly that, what you just said. I mean, his last royalty check was $13.13. It is crazy. But his life was in this really uncanny way. It often tended to be symbolic in that way. Life yeah. just kind of showered him with symbolism all the time. <laughs> Even the bad kind. When you when you live a life where you're surrounded by subconscious doubles, inevitably subconscious <laughs> doubles will appear in your work. Exactly. Well, um, you also point out, and it's worth reminding, that Fitzgerald had this deep admiration for Joseph Conrad. Uh, you quote Conrad's line, fiction is a history, human history, or it is nothing. And you point to the middleman inscription he offered to Gene Buck. Um, you also note that Rig Lardner, Ring Lardner and Fitzgerald, they performed this drunken dance outside the Doubleday estate in May 1923, only to be unceremoniously ejected by the Night Watchmen. Um, I, I'm wondering, how obsessive was Fitzgerald about Conrad? Were you able to find any direct Gatsby lineage uh, from Conrad or anything? Um, not quite, but he was he was very open about his admiration for Conrad, and, and um, Conrad was certainly an important writer for him. In fact, one of the novels that Fitzgerald said was the, the novel that he wished he had written more than any other novel was Conrad's Nostromo, Nostromo which is yeah. a novel that a lot of people you don't, know, read don't read anymore. It's a really Heart of Darkness tends to be the one. Um, or even Lord Jim, yeah. Or even Lord Jim, but he he definitely loved Lord Jim, and I have seen Lord Jim in in, uh, in various places in his work, and I think that he um, what he what where Conrad really comes into Gatsby most obviously is in the use of Nick Carraway yeah. as both character and narrator, the way that Conrad used Marlowe in several of his novels, including Heart of Darkness and Lord Jim. Um, and it's and it was understanding the way that that technique could help him tell his story, I think that is Conrad's greatest influence on Gatsby. Did he really see novels as that history that Conrad said that they were? Or? I think he did, absolutely. I mean, his, his novels w- tended to be uh, contemporary. They tended to be drawn very much from his own experiences and based on people that he knew or had met. Um, he Most of his best work is, in some sense, uh, based on, on these kind of composite characters. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, the, the character of Dick Diver in Tender is the Night is, is partly Fitzgerald. It's partly his friend Gerald Murphy. Yeah. And he kind of morphs the two together. As any writer does. Really. Absolutely. I mean, it's something he had a big argument with uh, with Hemingway about because Hemingway said that Tender is the Night, that it said of Tender is the Night that this was sort of an illegitimate technique. He got kind of high-handed yeah. and, and announced that there are so, some ways you're allowed to write fiction and some ways you're not allowed to write fiction, which is a bit rich coming from Hemingway given that The Sun Also Rises is very much a Romanoclay. <laughs> exactly. And, and what's also terrible about Hemingway is his treatment of Fitzgerald. I mean, Fitzgerald is really on the down and out and he's still saying, yes, yes, Ernest is putting out all these great books and and, and Hemingway is basically just totally shit-talking him the entire yeah, time. It's yeah. really sad. It is sad. Yeah, Hemingway, yeah. Hemingway was not averse to kicking Fitzgerald when he was down. <laughs> I know, I know. I don't know. I, 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 he must have had some sort of uh, machismo thing. Yeah, um, you think? <laughs> so while we're talking about composite characters, let's talk about Max Gerlach, mm. this mysterious neighbor at Great Neck who is believed to be one of the models for Gatsby. You reproduce a photo with a note scrawled by Gerlach, how are you in the family, old sport? So is this the closest tangible example you were able to find of the old sport that just was to 
populate all of Gatsby quite yeah. wonderfully. Yeah, I think that um, scholars, uh, the, the Gerlach uh, lineage has been known for a while, and, and other scholars yeah. uh, found him first, I should say. Yes. Uh, but he um, he was a bootlegger. We don't know very much about him. It was actually Zelda who said after Fitzgerald's death to Fitzgerald's first biographer that Gatsby had been based on um, a bootlegger called Gerlach. Yeah. And then people tried to track down who this Gerlach uh, was. And we haven't been able to find out that much information. So he's still a bit of a mystery. But yes, he left this note for the Fitzgeralds um, in the summer of 1923, where he uses the catchphrase old sport. And Fitzgerald did write in a letter that Gadsby was based on an older man. He just didn't identify who that man was. And he said in the letter, he started out as an, as an older man that I knew, and then he turned into me, yes. which is what his characters had a tendency to do. I'm really curious. I mean, you reproduced so many fascinating images and notes from Fitzgerald's scrapbook. And I have to wonder, you know, what is the condition of this thing? Is it tatters? <laughs> what, what do you have to do? to sort of look through it these days. And yeah, like, you know. the, the scrapbook is at um, the, it's actually four volumes of scrapbooks. It's at yeah. um, the archives at, at Princeton sure. University, which has the Fitzgerald papers. And actually, the, the scrapbook is so fragile that you're not allowed to to see the original. What they did was they digitized Facsimile. it. They're all up on PDFs. Yeah. And so I was able to work through those. Um, and, and what's great about them is is that they're because they are really high quality, really high resolution, you can enlarge them because a lot of these are really tiny little pieces of paper. Yeah. Yeah. And they, I think they would be a lot harder to read in, in the original form. And but yeah, they're they're so crumbling that they're kind of locked away in a vault. Yeah. And um, the uh, the head of the library won't, wouldn't wouldn't let me touch them for love or money. I wasn't going to get anywhere near them. them. No, nope, wow. I was wow. not allowed anywhere near them. But the the reproductions are are high enough quality to huh. use. Luckily. Well, in terms of like you know tracking down missing things or things that may have fallen out, are the PDFs of good enough quality for you to uh, track like? perhaps things that there were, you know, tape marks or stuff like that. I mean, did you, was that a consideration of the research? Yeah, or? a little bit. I mean, what I was trying to do for the most part was to um, identify, because Fitzgerald, uh, these are all clippings. I mean, he was basically, it's the equivalent of self-Googling. I mean, yeah. that's basically what he was doing, was he was finding all the mentions of him um, in in contemporary press and, you know, clipping it and putting it in the scrapbook. And um, But what he, what he didn't do usually was write down the source. So it's usually not dated, and it's there are only a couple dates and a couple of um, actual papers or authors identified, you know, he would sort of scribble that over a couple of them. But there are literally hundreds of these clippings. And what I was trying to do was to was to track them down where I could. And I was able to track down a bunch of them and locate them in the newspapers from 1922, which I was able to do because of the um, the handy-dandy uh, digital archives so that now computers can – I could search for things and match them up. Sure, sure. Which I wouldn't have been able to do without a, without a computer. So that's mostly what I was trying to do was to connect the dots between his – the fictional world of Gatsby – and the nonfiction world of 1922 that he was depicting. And that's always what I was trying to, to understand better and to reconstruct as much as I could what he and Zelda were actually doing. But at the same time, I mean, we are dealing with a novel that is incredibly surreal. I mean, you know, I, I, all the objects that are illusory balanced on the edges of noses, the constant airy feel, the gusts flowing through all of the homes and all that. So in, in what way can you, do you have to kind of uh, take some of this kind of with a more surreal bent as opposed to a kind of one-to-one bent. I yeah, mean, what absolutely. Do you do for that? Absolutely. I mean, look, it's a novel that is... Um 
that is a kind of dreamscape in, in certain ways. And one of the things I say in my book is that it, it, would, it would absolutely flout the entire spirit of the novel if you tried to pin down its meanings. It is a novel that's about suggestiveness and it's about imagination and it's about amplifying possibilities. But that's what I was trying to do is not to narrow the possibilities, but to say there are actually more meanings in this novel than we recognize. If we treat it as purely fiction, we're actually missing part of the story. Yeah. And part of that story, which was clear to its initial readers, is what a contemporary novel it was. So I'm not trying to, as it were, to 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 to, to get readers to stop reading um, the, those wonderful, as you say, surreal, dreamy, enchanted moments. On the contrary, but I feel like those moments are, are we are so sensitized to those aspects of the novel that it's made us a little bit, uh, um, you know, kind of, it's blunted our ability to register some of the other aspects of the novel. And I thought yeah. that the nonfiction context helped lift those up out of it. So you're saying that Gatsby is typically read with the surreal in mind and that actually we should Look to it as a absolute mirror that he was holding up to the world. Not an absolute mirror. I think it is a it is a, a distorting mirror, and yeah. it's a transforming mirror, and it's a kind of you know beautiful you know glowing mirror. Uh, but it's it's a not, murmuring mirror, exactly. Uh, and it would he would have a color. It would be a colored mirror yes, because everything yes. in this novel is colored. Um, but rather that I would like us to be able to see both aspects of the novel simultaneously. And I think that we tend to only pay attention to one half of it. And so it's not that I want us to stop paying attention to that and to read the novel as very similitude yeah. but rather to see that it's very much of its time and place and that we have we think we understand that time and place and we don't yeah. and we have all kinds of misconceptions about it so what I wanted to do was to kind of correct the record about what that time and place was actually like and then to show how the novel reflects that as well as you know reflecting these you know the 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 universal truths that we all know are in the novel as well. But maybe this is a problem because the surreal stuff plays to our imagination. How does the more literal stuff play to our imagination? Or is this just inevitable? I mean, that's a natural reaction to reading a novel, right? Sure, absolutely. But see, I think that I don't I don't see why, why nonfiction can't be part of our imagination too. I mean, history is an act of imagination. And that's part of what my book is about, is that is that history in and of itself, the, these are, um, one of the things that I found that I really loved was that there are these these patterns in history that are almost like an artist, you know, an artist's patterns, they, but they're found instead of made. And there they are. There are these connections and resonances and echoes. And, and that, to me, was very exciting. So for, I think that, the, that this is also, there's no reason why we can't be imaginative about reality. I don't think, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Yeah. So my hope was that this would add to the meanings of the novel, not subtract from them. That was never that would never be what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I very much envision my book as a, as a tribute to Gatsby, and and therefore as a as a way to try to open up its meanings um, and not shut them down. Well, I mean, the act of stating a fact is a story in and of itself. So how do you sort through various angles on what some people think, especially because, I mean, I'm. Reading this book, I'm seeing Fitzgerald scholars over argue over all sorts of niceties. It's, it's just utterly ridiculous. So yeah. how do you how do you sort through you know I guess the the story of the <laughs> of what each fact means or what each uh, each morsel uh, aligned with reality means? What do you do? What's the organization? Um, well, I, you know the the organization was um, it was like trying to organize life. You know, I mean, so it was it was trying to corral yeah. all of these very uh, uh, you know ungovernable facts into into some kind of uh, narrative shape. And, you know, for me, the, the principle, there were a couple of principles of inclusion and exclusion. Um, one of them was to try to 
give a sense of fun and a sense of pleasure because they were having the Fitzgeralds were having a good time. Yeah. And I feel like when they weren't hungover. When they weren't hungover. <laughs> um, and uh, and then they just go have a good time again. But the um, I, I feel as if some literary criticism, not all of it, obviously, but a great deal of it, especially academic literary criticism, seems to really set out to suck all the joy out of yeah. out of the books that we all love. And so, well, that's the danger of the, anal- the over analytical critic. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But also that they're very; these books are very dry, and they and they they they, they suggest that there's only that there's pleasure is over here, and then if you're going to be serious, you you have to be joyless, you know. And I don't see why you can't be joyful and serious at the same time and have a good time. So my principle of inclusion was, uh, there were a couple. One was if it's fun, it goes in. Um, one was, uh, but the other one was was that I, as I as I was doing my research, I kept finding facts that surprised me because, um, as I said, I think we do have these myths and misconceptions about what we think 1922 was like. So one of my rules of inclusion was every time I found something that made me go, who knew? Uh, I had no idea. Then it went in. So it was a kind of who knew does Gatsby. Um, and and that each, each aspect of that world that I was that I was uncovering had to connect back to the novel. Uh, so finding out what the swastika means um, yeah. in 1922, you know, the swastika that, it, that Wolfsheim has on uh, as, as the name of his holding company, um, finding out what the length of dresses really were, finding out what the green light, what, what meanings of green were available um, in 1922 to the reader, or sorry, in 1924 and 1925 to the writer and the readers of Gadsby? Uh, does it make sense to talk about the green light in terms of it meaning go? The question is, did green mean go by 1922? Did they have traffic lights? And I actually did a lot of research to try to find out what what the possible meanings were. And it, that's a good example of what I was saying about trying to open up meanings. We, we all wrote high school essays about the meaning yeah. of the green light. And we know that the green light can mean it's the color of money and it can mean envy and it can mean hope and it means spring and it means all of, and it means, green means all of those things. Yeah. So I would be the last to deny that it means all of those things. But it turns out there is another set of meanings that were available to Fitzgerald, which is uh, about whether green could mean go. And one of the things that I found was actually there was, there was a, a kind of controversy about what green lights meant yeah. in 1924. That, to me, is a remarkable fact. And it has this kind of wonderful frisson where history and fiction are, uh, you know, uh, are, are, are kind of fizzing together, yeah. you know? And, and it's those kinds of resonances that I, that I was trying to, to pick up on. So when I found stuff like that that connected back to key symbols or themes of the novel... Um, and, and themes as well, uh, things like the mistaken identity or, or class consciousness and, and social mobility and those kinds of ideas that are in the novel. When I found things like that that connected in the real world of New York in 1922 to those themes and aspects, they made it in. And then anything that I found about the Fitzgerald's activities in that year um, that nobody knew, that made it in. And then the final thing was just to try to give a sense of what was happening historically, what a remarkable year it was. I think it deserves the uh, a retelling in its own right. I mean, just what was happening in that year is extraordinary. And there are a couple of people, I think, working on books about 1922 for exactly that reason. Yeah. And so things like the fact that, you know, Mussolini is, is coming into power and, and the first mention of Hitler in the pages of the New York Times happens in 1922. So these world events are, are swirling around the novel as well. Sarah, I am a big fan of divigations that come from a novel, but at the same time, there is always the risk of getting completely away from the novel with these divigations. I'll give you one example. When I saw Child's Restaurant, I then dived into the wonderful menus that are online 
online at the NYPL and easily lost about two hours of my life. <laughs> Sorry and about I, that. And, I, and, I, and then I had to go back to your book. I, I mean, it's like, wait, wait, what happened? I had to. And then that then that book is 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 only merely on top of peeling into the onion even further. Then I got to go to Gatsby. So, <laughs> so there is this constant risk of of getting so away from the book that one wonders, well, you know, how does one control the impulse, or even is that impulse uh, is it dangerous to some degree? Because you, ultimately, it's really about the book in the end. It's really about the Great Gatsby. So it is. But as I say, I tried very hard to make sure that the details that come into the book. Um, uh, do connect back to the ideas that are in Gatsby. And I don't always spell that out because I didn't want to, I didn't want to lecture the reader and I wanted to leave things to the imagination. Um, And and again, I think that's in the spirit of Gatsby is to leave things to the reader's imagination. But there there are always connections. So the, the stuff that's in there is echoing um, language and ideas that are in the novel or in um, Fitzgerald's life and trying to, to sort of make a, a kind of collage of their world that is a, that is a kind of nonfiction parallel for Gatsby um, was what I was trying to do. So certainly in my mind, um, and for many of them, I could tell you what the, how the dots connect. Um, the, the, the mo- hopefully, the more that one knows Gatsby, the more one will see um, what what the possibilities are for there to be a kind of tissue of connections um, between these real-life stories and uh, what Fitzgerald is doing in his great, great novel. But we also enter this level of controversy. I mean, for example, Mary McCarthy wrote an amazing review of Pale Fire that is absolutely symbolic and analytical. I happen to love it. Mm. I know a lot of other people who absolutely hate it. Mm. So the question is, is, you know, how much close reading does something like Gatsby really need, or is this just also a subjective consideration? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, that's a question for any, you know, any literary critic is going to have to answer that question. Uh, obviously, from my point of view, I'm an English professor, so yeah. <laughs> I'm a fan you of close reading. <laughs> exactly. It's what <laughs> yeah. I have to do. I'm a plumber. I have to plumb. Um, <laughs> but I think that, um, obviously, I'm a, I'm a believer in close reading. A book like Gatsby repays close reading. That's the thing. And so I think that what you have to do is is you have to be sensitive as a close reader. It is possible to overread. It is possible to try to assign symbolic connections to things that have no symbolic connections Um, and to try to, you know, find the symbolism of a table when really it's, you know, as Freud said, sometimes a banana is just a banana. Um, Writers have to use real objects and (laughs) they come into the story. So definitely one one can't be flat-footed and stupid about it. There's a kind of common sense to it. But Fitzgerald, for example, is using um, Keats all the way through The Great Gatsby sure. to show him how to do certain kinds of, to create certain kinds of, of metaphorical effects. And that kind of figuration is stuff that he is doing deliberately and he is thinking about and he is an artist making something out of words. And so I think it is uh, um, it, the least we can do is to is to give him the credit for having done that yeah. uh, and pay attention to it. He didn't do it by accident. And he, I think he wanted us to pay attention to it. He was heartbroken when uh, the critics in 1925, for the, by and large, uh, dismissed the novel and they saw it as just uh, a kind of tabloid story uh, that was, you know, uh, just echoing kind of uh, the stories of the newspapers and magazines and, and uh, the movies of the day. And he he deliberately had put all of these deeper meanings into the book. And he uh, wrote Edmund Wilson, his friend, um, the, already by that point becoming one of the, the great critics. And also instrumental um, in getting Fitzgerald's reputation back online after his absolutely death. Absolutely, yeah. after his death. But he wrote Wilson uh, the summer after Gatsby was published saying... Um, uh, of all of the book's readers, um, even the ones who liked it the most, even the most enthusiastic, not one of them understood what the book is about. Yeah. So I think that that 
means that it behooves us to think about what the book is about and to uh, and and to take it to take it seriously on its own terms. It it is a book that rewards close reading and it rewards rereading. Let's go back to Keats, and there are actually a couple of other things we got to get back into based off of that last answer. But let's start with Keats. I mean. We have Fitzgerald reading Keats over and over and over. And then when Zelda and Scott are in the French Riviera, we see him reading the biography of Keats. We also see them staying at, at this hotel across the square from where Keats died. So it seems to me, and, and this is, I'm hoping to possibly see if you had any hard evidence on this, that it's just as much about Keats's life as it is about his poetry. And maybe this was one of those kinds of poets he just had to keep on reading so it would it was constantly imprinted in his mind so that when he sat down to write, when he sat down to actually go ahead and, and advance on Gatsby, he had that imagery that he could sort of tap and riff off of. Is mm-hmm. that safe to say? Was it the life or was it the poetry? I think it's mostly the poetry. I mean, yeah. he was certainly interested in the life, but uh, for the most part, it's the poetry. He writes uh, his daughter uh, near the end of his life. He writes her letters where he's explaining Keats's technique in his poetry. And he, he was, he was a, a mechanic in that sense. He was trying to understand the inner workings of Keats's great poetry and to hear the music in it. Or, or you know, maybe mechanic is, is to uh, lump in a... Oh, I don't want to be offensive to mechanics, but, uh, but, um, but he's a musician. He's a technical uh, artist in that sense. And he's trying to understand how Keats composed yeah. his poetry. And he's learning what the, the mechanics of it are, what the music in it is. And he's using that technique uh, and updating it all the way through Gatsby. So, uh, for example, he uses the way that Keats writes about um, in the in the uh, feast scene in the Eve of St. Agnes. He uses those techniques in and updates them in the party scenes in Gatsby. So he's learning from Keats and he's, and he's reworking him and revising him. And he gets um, all, he loves all the romantics, but he gets them really into his head, yeah. and then he's he's finding a kind of Art Deco version of uh, of romantic poetry. But I guess the question is, and, and I'm wondering even if any biography or any kind of scholar could even answer this question. I mean. All authors, to some degree, are kind of priming the pump, so to speak, mm-hmm. by reading some other author that helps them get through a particular section of a manuscript. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if we could even know what was going on in terms, compositionally speaking, inside of Fitzgerald's head, or if that's just an impossible question to ask. Well, he doesn't. Um, he he destroyed the earliest draft, so we don't have that. He and and he didn't always tell the 100 uh, percent truth in his letters. Um, so he well, he embellished. He, I can't uh, even imagine what exactly he lied. a writer exactly. Sometimes he fictionalized. <laughs> Uh, in his letters too, so um, so it's just hard to know. But he, what he told his editor was that he was reading, um, he was reading Milton, Byron, um, Shelley, and he always read Keats. And so th- those are the the writers that he claimed to be reading. He claimed to be reading a little bit of French. He claimed to be reading uh, Raymond Radiguet, but he um, he his French wasn't very good. So it's, that's where I think he might have been slightly exaggerating. Um, we know Zelda was reading Henry James at the time. She was reading Roderick Hudson and. Um, um, she was actually reading a lot as well. And so who knows how much, you know, kind of uh, conversation they were having about the books that they were reading as well. He he said that he wanted to not read modern fiction while he was working on Gatsby um, because he didn't want to be kind of tainted by it. He wanted to have this vision clear in his head of what he was trying to do. And later he would always be, he was always careful about uh, writers' ability to influence him. Um, so, for example, he wouldn't read Hemingway when he was writing because he didn't want, Hemingway was so infectious, he didn't want Hemingway to get into his style. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he was certainly aware of his of his tendency. He was very impressionistic. He was impressionable, and so and and he was very aware of that. So he he used that ability. Um, he he would you know.
know, kind of suck up the, you know, absorb the influences of great writers and then try to use them uh, in his books. We don't want to leave out Zelda. I really, no. I try not to do this. Don't <laughs> leave out the, the, the wives and the muses or the Absolutely. other writers. You describe Zelda and Scott trading anecdotes, trading off witticisms and all mm. that. Uh, and this is largely in the latter part of uh, of. of Scott's life. So the question is, is how much of that really kind of worked its way into into Gatsby? It seemed to me that Gatsby was more of a kind of um, independent entity than what came later and what came controversially later that has since been argued very interestingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another rabbit hole right there yeah, about did Scott rip off Zelda, etc. Uh, yeah. so how, how, how does this play into now, the Gatsby? That we actually do know. Yeah. Um, to a great extent, because um, the the places he he was always very open about what he was using, and and so was Zelda. Um, and yes, Gatsby probably has the least Zelda in it of all of his yeah. books. Um, certainly, Tender is the Night controversially sure. used Zelda's letters from when uh, she was in a psychiatric hospital uh, to describe the madness of Nicole Diver, which some people think was fairly insensitive. And uh, you know, there's a case to be made there that that maybe wasn't the nicest thing. Um, hey, but Wallace Stegner did it too. Down well, the exactly. Line. Yeah. People do it. You know, that's what writers do, right? Yeah. Writers, writers lift. Um, he he also used a passage of hers um, at the end of *The Side of Paradise*, his first novel, a very beautiful passage that she wrote in a letter. He he used almost verbatim. Um, and but in in the case of Gatsby, yes, it is a more it is a more autonomous work. Although he read drafts to Zelda, she certainly uh, was was one of his most important readers and critics, and she had a fine critical mind. Um, and so we don't know to what degree she made suggestions. We, she was also a, a good artist, and um, he wrote a letter saying that she'd been drawing pictures of Gatsby for him until her fingers ached, so that he could so that he knew what Gatsby looked like and who Gatsby was um, in his mind. So she certainly helped. But in terms of her language making its way into Gatsby, uh, there's only a couple. Of the, the famous line um, where that she says uh, when Daisy says uh, that she hopes her daughter will be a beautiful little fool because it's the best thing a girl can be in this world is what Zelda said when their daughter was born as she came out of the ether and uh, Scott was sitting there notepadded. <laughs> And ready to capture any juicy <laughs> tidbits. Um, and uh, similarly, when Daisy says, um, what will we do with ourselves? What does anybody ever do? Uh, that's also one of Zelda's lines. So there are a couple of lines that make their way uh, in, into Gatsby. But for the most part, Gatsby is uh, pretty demonstrably uh, uh, something that Scott is working through in his mind, in his language. And there, there, Zelda was a very talented writer in some ways, oh, yeah. but their, their styles are so distinct. It's really not difficult to work out which yeah. parts Scott wrote and which parts Zelda wrote. And there have been, I've seen, you know, things online and stuff where people have attributed certain passages to, to that to Scott. And it, and I just think you, you obviously haven't read much Zelda because as soon as you read that, you know, yeah. it's Zelda. Her, her, her voice is so characteristic and so unique um, that, that when, once you get a feel for it, you can tell when she suddenly pops up. <laughs> I, I'm curious. I mean, you know, you've really clearly, obviously looked at the Fitzgeralds. I mean, is there any good definitive book or resource that could distinguish what Scott wrote and what Zelda wrote? I've got a curiosity. Here. Um, yeah. I mean, it's been done in the in the scholarship. I'm trying yeah. to think who particularly like has done it. Some go-to place. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the best scholar for this, I mean, he's really the go-to scholar uh, on textual questions like that is um, James L. W. West. Okay, uh, and uh, and he is um, he's he's done the Cambridge editions and and uh, he's he's tracked all of that down. Brookley uh, did it did it to a certain extent as well. But for the most part, it, it we know it is Fitzgerald for the most part. Yeah. Sure. Um, let's go back to the reception of The Great Gatsby, which you were talking about mm. earlier. I mean, Fitzgerald had this great fear 
that Gatsby would be confused with the lurid melodrama of this guy, Robert Chambers, a man who I know because he was in H.P. Lovecraft's cir- circle. Um, but he eventually turned to romantic fiction because that was where the bucks were. Mm-hmm. Um, you tracked down this review by Burton Rasco that not only made the explicit connection, uh, but that also alludes to this letter written by Fitzgerald, which accompanies the book. Uh, the question is, is why was Fitzgerald so concerned with what people thought about him? I mean, he had the support as we have said, of Edmund Wilson, mm. of T.S. Eliot, mm. of Edith Wharton, of Gertrude Stein. I mean, you know, did he see Roscoe's review as a kind of betrayal, mm. or, or what happened yeah. here? Yeah. Um, it's, it's one of the, the, the mysteries that I tried to track down. Um, Burton Roscoe was the literary editor of the, of the New York Tribune, which would, uh, which would merge with the Herald and become the late lamented Herald Tribune. And um, he was a, a friendly acquaintance of the Fitzgeralds, and, then, um, and, and a supporter. He supported both uh, Scott and Zelda's writing. And, um, and then in the summer of 1925, after Gatsby came out, Fitzgerald wrote a series of letters to their mutual acquaintances, um, basically saying that he hated Rasco and that Rasco had written this terrible review of Gatsby. And nobody had been ever, had ever been able to locate the review in and question. And not in the scrapbook either. And it's not in the scrapbook. He didn't keep it. Um, he was really angry about it. And um, he writes these really awful letters. I mean, he's swearing his head off. Um, and, um, and so I, because Burton Rasco had written very interesting things about the Fitzgerald that the Fitzgeralds that had never made its way into other biographies, and I really like Burton Rasco for a lot of reasons, and so I wanted to bring his writing about the Fitzgeralds in 1922 back into my book. So I wanted to try to see whether I could find this review, um, and it took a long time, but I actually was was eventually able to track it down and. It How'd was, you find it? Um, a detective work. It was old-fashioned detective work. I went to, um, and it's uh, having used the digital archives. I'll say this was um, the digital archives were no good because it wasn't. It's not online. Um, and Microfilms. I, I, no, I had to do. I had to do the old-fashioned way. I had to go book to book to book to book. So what I did oh, was wow. just hunt Rasco mentions um, in on on the seafloor of Firestone Library at Princeton. Since it's an open wow. stack library, I could do it. So I oh, just wow. chased Rasco like it was a rabbit hunt. You know, and I was kind of racing around <laughs> trying to find Rasco, and um, every obscure mention of him that I could find I would track down to the next book and then eventually found the name of a, of a magazine that he was freelancing for and thought well maybe that's where it appeared and um, and and called up that book which took several days and and uh, it's a totally forgotten arts magazine and there it was um, so the what what was surprising about it was it has the reference to Robert Chambers, so I knew it had to be the the review in question. And Rasco didn't write that many reviews of Gatsby. I mean, this is yeah. it, and it's the summer that it came out, and it's all it's it all matches. But the funny thing was, it wasn't that bad a review. Yeah. Um, it's actually not a particularly bad review. And so I had to really. I mean, it's just sort of you know, it's tepid, um, but it says some nice things, and then it has some re- reservations. It's really, it's by no means a hatchet job. And um, so this that- this job was touchy. He was very touchy. And um, and exactly, and I think that's the issue, is that he, what had happened was that, you know, Robert Chambers was, a, he wrote pot boilers. He wrote these, you know, kind of, uh, they were kind of the equivalent of Harlequin romances about the upper classes. And um, Fitzgerald, all of his early books had been, likened to Chambers by various reviewers. And so that... He wrote for the Slicks. It was a very, very sore subject for him. And particularly with Gatsby, which he saw as being his bid for art literary greatness, um, the idea that this would once again 
be likened to these cheap books that he deplored. Um, it, it just made him a bit nuts. And the thing is, in terms of your question about why wasn't the, the admiration of Hemingway and Eliot and, and Stein enough, all of this is preemptive. He's doing all of this before Gatsby comes out when sure. he's very anxious about how it will be received. He's writing letters saying, I think I've written this magnificent novel. Um, please tell me what you think of it. I hope you think it's great. You know, um, So he was insecure and he wanted reassurance. He wanted to know that he had he thought it was great and he wanted to know that other people did as well. Um, and so the the when eventually when Hemingway, Eliot, and Stein like it, that did help him a lot. It did uh, uh, keep up his spirits to a certain extent, but he found it very frustrating and, and depressing um, how many people were misunderstanding it. And for various reasons, Rasco came to symbolize uh, the people who were not understanding his novel, I think. Um, and so he, Rasco became a kind of scapegoat. Um, but there's a little epilogue. They had a, they had a rapprochement in the 30s, which, yeah. I, which I also uh, talk about. That's so true. It's not all, it's not all bad. It's mostly, yeah, well, it's pretty sad. But. Uh, uh, yeah, but then, then you get into Tender as the Night, and he's yeah. trying to go ahead and do the whole Texas Hold'em thing yet again. And bingo, uh, he, he puts his heart into it, and he's misunderstood. I mean, I guess the question is, is why did he have that sort of all-or-nothing impulse, the great desire to, to grab literary respectability, when he, he sort of had it, but uh, he just didn't have it in the, in the sort of more popular venues, mm. that, that when, when the book was totally misunderstood? I think what happened with Fitzgerald was that when he, when, you know, he burst onto the scene at the age of 24 and his first novel you know he was he was seen as this wunderkind and and um it, and the first novel the side of paradise was both popular and critically esteemed and I think it gave him pr- fairly false expectations. He's, he thought, therefore, that he could continue to write books that he thought were artistically ambitious um, that would also be commercially successful. But this side of paradise was something of an anomaly. It was just it, he got lucky. It was you know he won the lottery to a certain extent, and he was never able to replicate that success again. And he and speaking of chasing green lights, you know yeah. that was something that he kept chasing was the possibility that he could be he could be rich and successful and an artist all at the same time, which of course was a was a chimera that. Had Hemingway chased for a long time too, and you know, in in not just in America. I, I don't know of very many cultures in which there are a lot of people who are writing work that is both seen as great art and. Uh, is is you know massively commercially successful. The two tend not to go hand in hand. Yeah. And but he he struggled with that because it, they had gone hand in hand the first time, and so he couldn't figure out. And and basically he was on a kind of declining trajectory after that, where the the harder he tried, the less popular his books became. And but we think now, you know, in retrospect, that that you could you can see the difference between The Great Gatsby and The Side of Paradise is is immense, and it's only five years apart. The spelling improved. <laughs> spelling didn't improve. I'm afraid that was just it. Just got better edited. Um, his spelling was never uh, well, Max exactly. His spelling was never his strong suit, and of course, in the the f- um, first editions of Gatsby, have yeah. a couple of, of mistakes that and Wolfsheim being spelled I E M uh, instead of E I M is um, is clearly Fitzgerald's um, poor spelling. He could never figure out how to spell Hemingway either, which incensed Hemingway. <laughs> Why no can't he figure he out how to spell to my life? Yeah, exactly. Wow, Why wow. can't he spell my name? Um, so no, the, the spelling didn't improve, but the writing did. And and what you can see is the is the care that that went into Gatsby and how much he learned yeah. between this side of Paradise and Gatsby. And and so he he shared. I think any anybody feels this way though. It's like that thing that you get. You know, when you that that frustration when you submit an essay uh, and and you think it's really not very good and it gets an A, and then there's one that you you know really labor over and yeah. it gets a C. And and that just feels bewildering and it's infuriating because you think there ought to be some kind of it doesn't it just seems unjust so you want the ones that you really work at to be the ones that people respect and yeah. of course
course, it just doesn't always work out that way. Sure. Um, the Fitzgeralds, they take this trip to Europe in May 1924, mm -hmm. and Zelda uh, reported that Scott was displaying the most romantic proclivities <laughs> on the French Riviera. I had mentioned this period where he was reading a bunch of Keats, and you had also mentioned Byron and Shelley. Um, the Fitzgeralds were very happy during this particular period. I'm wondering how this rubbed off on the writing of Gatsby. I mean, we know the famous line that Fitzgerald said that the sign of a first-class intellectual was to hold two opposing viewpoints mm -hmm. in his mind, and it seems to me in rereading Gatsby that this book is both very beautiful and very sad. It's very happy. It's very melancholy. It's both, and mm -hmm. that's why you can walk away with it with any kind of emotion. So, you know, how how did this affect, you know, how did Fitzgerald's temperament, were you able to find out how this worked mm. its way into that kind of simultaneous emotion? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think he's a kind of great artist of ambivalence, you know, yeah. <laughs> and he's both, he's drawn to things and then he recognizes their dangers and so there's always this kind of push-pull uh, feeling in, in a lot of his books and, and particularly in Gatsby, which I think is is a kind of hymn to ambivalence um, and, and uh, you know, the and, and is itself the, the experience that we have when we read the book is is to share that ambivalence where we 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 yearn for the the gorgeousness and the luxury and the and the you know the fabulousness of of these parties and yet the novel also exposes how tawdry they are and how toxic they are and and so there there's this kind of um you know this sense that the heart the heart wants what the mind knows is is bad for it and um and that kind of divorce between the romantic heart and the critical intelligence is something that or that struggle not a divorce but it's a tussle um between the two is something you see in a lot of a lot of Fitzgerald's works what what happened over the course of the summer they were pretty happy uh, he and Zelda but then um Zelda who was only um let's see in in 20 she was 24 when he was writing the novel and um, she got bored. He was working too hard on his novel, and he was neglecting her, uh, she thought. And uh, she didn't much care for that. And so she entered into a dalliance with a, yeah. with a French aviator. Nobody knows how serious the affair was uh, in one sense, but it was emotionally serious for both of them, and it was a real crisis uh, for their marriage. And um, that happened while he was trying to finish the novel. So I don't think there's very much doubt that um, some of his uh, anger and, uh, and his anxiety and his sense of betrayal worked its way into the book. Um, it's, it's not a book that's particularly kind to its women. And it's, yeah. it's possible. I mean, Fitzgerald wasn't always kind to, to the women in his, in his fiction. But um, it's, uh, in, in the moment of the writing of Gatsby, he, he may have been a little bit cross. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, you are very obsessive with etymology in this <laughs> book. I mean, you have this letter that you uh, reproduce that, in which Fitzgerald is conjugating cocktail yeah. and in which you offer the possibility that perhaps <laughs> well, Fitzgerald was the first to use cocktail as a verb. Um, but, you know, th this is interesting to me. I'm wondering, you know, did you take Gatsby and do a sort of almost like word map of it? I mean, what, what was this all about here? Um, that was my attempt to reconstruct 1922 as faithfully as I could. Very early on in the course of the writing, I realized that what I needed to do was to guard against anachronism. Yeah. And I didn't want in my own writing to start using language from a later period because that's something that we keep doing. We tend to let these kinds of retrospective ideas about the 1920s that are actually filtered through the 50s and the 70s and uh, filtered through film versions. And, um, and then we, we superimpose those back on the novel. And that was my explicit project was to try not to do that, was try to excavate the novel from those sorts of, uh, of, of superimposed uh, misunderstandings. And so I actually had a, I started to compile a list of words that were available uh, in the 1920s so that I knew whether I could use them or not. And eventually, as the list 
grew, I suddenly realized that the list wasn't just a writer's tool, that it was actually really interesting. And how, first of all, how modern it was, how many of the words that were coined in the era of Gatsby between 1918 and 1923, which is the, of course, the time span of the novel, um, is uh, how many of those words are actually very, very modern. Um, it, merchant banking is invented in this era, and so suddenly we get all the language of merchant banks. We get arbitrage and inflationary and deflationary and subprime. I couldn't believe that yeah. subprime popped up. Ponzi schemes are invented in this time. All this while we have a housing crisis going exactly, on. <laughs> exactly. Believe me, I was very aware of that as I was writing. And um, and so I, eventually, as, as I say, rather than it just being a writer's tool, um, I, I thought that that, that that list of words was a way of trying to describe both the the ways that they talked about themselves and, and to get us back into hearing the voice of the 1920s, but also to recognize how uncannily modern that voice is as well. And then, and then it just became, it, it, it became, I love words and, and uh, which, you know, I think is a good tool for a writer to have is to, is to think words are great. And so I got very interested in, in trying to find the, the words that, as I say, would kind of hopefully bring the 1920s to life, yeah. but also would make these connections between the world of the great Gatsby and our world. I have to bring up the Al-Eyed Man in Gatsby's <laughs> Library, one of my favorite side characters in the book. I mean, uh, you know, awakened from one week of drinking through the magical presence of books. He has been claimed to be Ring Lardner by some Fitzgerald scholars. Um, I'm wondering, though, if there's more of, of an actual documented connection in the Fitzgerald papers to Eckelberg. Mm. Because, I mean, you're dealing with uh, also this situation where Myrtle is seen looking out from Wilson's garage and, of course, you know, West Egg, East mm-hmm. Egg. What references to large round eyes can be found in Fitzgerald's <laughs> papers? I'm curious. Yeah, he does. Um, he, he is interested in large round eyes. I mean, I think that the this is, this is a clear case of a writer creating a pattern of symbolism. Yeah. And there is a metaphorical pattern throughout the novel about vision and blindness. That's one of the things that the novel is about. It's one of the things that a lot of writers in the 1920s were interested in. It sort of resonated uh, for them with their... Uh, with the kind of modern, you know, uh, uh, nihilism and uh, and despair, um, Hemingway uses exactly the same metaphorical pattern in *The Sun Also Rises* in 1926. This idea that you were that people were blind to what was happening around them. This idea that that vision was being lost. That we were no longer a visionary race. Um, that playing with those kinds of meanings is a way for an author to create layers of ideas because words like that mean more than one thing, obviously. Yeah. And so when you get that kind of metaphorical uh, uh, layering, it means that it's very it's a very efficient way to write, but it means that you can suggest lots of things simultaneously. And so uh, I think there's, there's uh, uh, the, the phrase owl eyes was used to describe Ring, Ring Lardner. Um, I think it is uh, far too literalist to think that therefore owl eyes is Ring Lardner. That's foolish. But Fitzgerald liked the, he liked the phrase. He yeah. liked the name. And so he uses it so that – but he, he's deliberately choosing um, images that let him get the idea of vision and blindness into the novel. Yeah. I, I want to actually bring up Meyer Wolfsheim, who we've mm. talked about. I mean, he's based off of Arnold Rothstein. Mm. Uh, you point out that racism was common during the 1920s and that, astonishingly, one of the things I had no idea about, Edith Wharton writes Fitzgerald that this anti-Semitic caricature was a perfect Jew. Mm. Um, but, you know, given that Fitzgerald was tr- attempting to reach new literary heights with Gatsby, I mean, why do you think that he wrote Wolfsheim the way that he did? And, and Or was this actually possibly fair game? I, I read an interesting piece by 
by the London, in the London Review of Books by Thomas Powers, mm-hmm. and he points to the fact that Damon Runyon used uh, Rothstein in his stories. Um, he was also a notable crime figure at the time. Um, and, of course, given that Monroe's star in The Last Tycoon is this Jewish uh, movie producer hero, I mean, is it fair to call Fitzgerald an anti-Semite? I- I'm curious about this. Um, the question of anti-Semitism and indeed racism is a is a tricky one. I think that the the, the there are a couple of things to bear in mind. Um, one is that um, Fitzgerald very much uh, we we can see his attitudes evolve and uh, he he grew he learned you know um, and um, and and of course the nation's attitudes changed as well. He's very much a kind of bellwether for American attitudes. And um, in the 1920s, uh, when he was a young man, it anti-Semitism was culturally acceptable. It was it was common. It was rife. Um, that's not to defend it. It was just, but it wasn't, there was, it, it was just common. And, um, and so the, um, the, the, that, and, and, and as you say, the, um, the Edith Wharton letter, uh, and that's a, it's a, it's a well-known letter, but it's, um, it's startling to us to read a great writer like Wharton, you know, congratulating him um, for this anti-Semitic caricature uh, and thinking that, he, you know, he did such a good job with it. And there are, of course, a little, there are little moments of passing uh, racism in The Great Gatsby as well about uh, African-Americans. And I think, you know, that is, on the one hand, casual racism was a way of life for white people in the 1920s. And that's just just a fact. I think we need to bear in mind that he makes Tom Buchanan a white supremacist, um, and that that it skewers him for it. Skewers him for it exactly. And so he, it's certainly not. I would not call it a racist novel myself. Others uh, obviously may disagree, but because he sees that he sees white supremacy in the Ku Klux Klan and all of that as totally ludicrous. Um, and so I think it's it's you know what we see is is. Uh, it helps us track the fact that American attitudes are changing during exactly this time. And by the time he comes to write the last tycoon, he's realized um, that that this isn't that this isn't the way that he wants to think about people, and that he wants to be a bigger person than that. Um, and and he's come to understand uh, how great Irving Thalberg, uh, the the producer who is the the basis for Monroe Star, um, was. He also had gone through uh, an alcoholic breakdown and um, a period of of intense depression in the mid-1930s, which became known as the crack-up period um, after his great essays about uh, about what that was like. And they are now, they're, they're, they're textbook essays about depression. Um, he's, he, was, he was clearly clinically depressed. And, but in one of the, the first, I think it's the first one, he talks about how one of the symptoms of his depression was that he became, he was recoiling from black people. Um, it, it took this kind of racist tinge for him. And then he writes in that there's, essay. There's that list, but he actually doesn't mention Jews on that list. No, he doesn't. He's talking about, he's talking about African-Americans there. But what he says is, he says immediately after that, he realized what a filthy response that was. And so he could, he could both have that impulse because he was raised in a racist moment yeah. and then correct it and say, I don't want to be a racist. And I think that it's that kind of self-correction correction that that we see and and as i say he he grew and he learned it, it, I mean, it seems to me that he was basically kind of going through a, pr- a progressive impulse as the times were changing. Yeah. That's safe to say that yeah, he wasn't really consciously fair. anti-Semitic. Right? No, exactly. I think that's right. And um, and once it was, you know, once he sort of realized that that was that that was, you know, beneath him, and it wasn't it wasn't doing justice to other people. I mean, one of the things I say in my book is that I do I think it's fair to call it a, a, a failure in The Great Gatsby because artistically it is a failure because The Great Gatsby is a novel about. Um, 
a person who is trying to leave his social origins behind. And it is a novel about being about being judged by your character rather than by the social conditions that you come from. And nothing is more, uh, you know, limiting than to see than to judge somebody by the color of their skin or by their ethnicity. So I think it's a failure of imagination in the novel. And um, and I think we can fault it for that. Um, I'm never sure personally how useful it is to run around policing old books in terms of their whether we think they have you know display correct attitudes or not. I, I don't know how how useful a way of reading that is. So I want to actually talk. I mean, we haven't actually mentioned the Hall and Mills murders. Um, Newsday's Wendy Smith uh, pointed out in her review of the book that uh, you don't really make a solid connection between the writing of The Great Gatsby and these particular murders. And she said that it was far fetched and confusing when you suggest a connection between the New Jersey prosecutors guess that Mills and her lover were killed in a case of mistaken identity and noting that George Wilson killed Gatsby because he thought Gatsby killed Myrtle. So you pledge in the preface that all this is going to come together in the eighth chapter and I'm very patiently reading <laughs> and I get to the eighth chapter and it's sort of uh, very loosey-goosey. You, pl- you basically write that the creative process pushes the murders of Hall and Mills into the background. I'm curious about this. I mean, you there's another moment in the book where you rightfully take Nancy Mitford and five subsequent biographies mm-hmm. on the Zelda and her abortionist question to task. But at the same time, you know, I'm wondering, I mean, I just don't didn't really see much of a connection. So how do the Hall and Mills murders even play into any kind of uh, reading of Gatsby? Or is it more kind of that was the times? Mm. Well, I think that's, I mean, what I was trying to do was to as I say, to understand the world that The Great Gatsby is depicting and to understand that um, away from our preconceptions and and all the things we've learned by osmosis, most of which it turns out are wrong. So I was trying to go back to a kind of blank slate and build a picture of 1922 as Fitzgerald would have experienced it and that that would be the world that he was thinking about two years later when he wrote this novel. and it's you know it's it's important I think that it's the very recent past. It's all very fresh in his head. Um, the the que- so to to take that example that you gave in uh, the the question of mistaken identity, uh, for instance. Why do I say there that when the the Hall Mills case becomes about mistaken identity, that it's worth noticing that the Great Gatsby is about mistaken identity? Am I therefore saying that Fitzgerald? Uh, got the idea of mistaken identity from the Hall Mills case. Of course not. That would be stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but what I am trying... But, but you do drive that point frequently throughout the book. No, That's but what, I'm, I, what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to suggest, and I would say that my my method is is trying to be suggestive in, in the ways that I feel that, that Gatsby is also a suggestive novel. I'm trying to match that with my own... I mean, obviously I'm not comparing myself to Fitzgerald's uh, abilities, but I'm trying to be suggestive too, that... What I was, what I'm trying to do there is to show that, in fact, the idea of mistaken identity is something that is very much part of the discourse of the world of 1922. The Hall Mills is just one example. In fact, there were all kinds of newspaper stories about mistaken identity in the ni- in 1922. When was the last time you read a story about mistaken identity? Identity theft, maybe, but mistaken identity. We don't read those stories. But that was in his world. It was yeah. it was there. Um, similarly, uh, somebody said. Um, uh, that they they didn't understand why I mentioned Leopold and Loeb uh, at the at the end of the book. Um, the reason I mentioned Leopold and Loeb is because as he finished The Great Gatsby, the Leopold and Loeb story broke, and he writes to his editor Max Perkins saying, "I think I'm going to base my next novel on the Leopold Loeb case." So I thought it was worth noticing that here's somebody who's following murder mysteries in the newspapers and thinking about them as sources for his novel. Um, the point is not to say uh, that therefore the Hall Mills murder is uh, a, is um, 
had to have influenced The Great Gatsby. I don't know that it did. I think unconsciously it's in there. I don't think there, I think there, the coincidences are too many as far as I'm concerned. But that's a matter for debate and we don't have to worry. I mean, I don't care whether people buy that in a sense or not. What, what I was trying to do was to say, was to write a book that was a kind of nonfiction parallel for The Great Gatsby. And the, um, the story of Myrtle Wilson and Tom Buchanan is about 20% of The Great Gatsby. And I thought in my mind, I still think this, um, that the Hall Mills story was a very interesting nonfiction parallel to that story. And it's not the same, but it parallels it in all kinds of interesting ways. And it lets us see something about the tawdriness and the darkness of the world of 1922, and I think the ways in which that tawdriness and darkness is also part of the ground of The Great Gatsby. And, and as I said earlier, I think that we tend in our readings of Gatsby to focus on the glamour and the enchantment to the exclusion of everything else that's in the novel. So what I hoped was that the Hall Mills story would sort of reframe the way that we think about that world and would give us nonfiction parallels. So what I did was um, about 20% of my book is uh, the Hall Mills story, the same way that about 20% of Gatsby is uh, the story of Tom and Myrtle. And so I was trying to create nonfiction parallels for the novel all the way through my book. That's what I was trying to do. But why not something like William Desmond Taylor, also mm. murdered in 1922, mm. sure. and also a case of someone who turned out to have this extraordinary, uh, you know, delusional yeah. Yeah. social connection. <laughs> Absolutely. Fascinating case. Sure. And, and that, he is in there. Yeah, yeah. And he is in he my is. book. Yes, yeah. um, so for exactly that reason, to say it's not just the Hallmills murder. The Hallmills murder for me is representative yeah. of the way that uh, that that kind of darkness and chaos and sordidness and but see the thing that's extraordinary about the Hall Mills murder it seems to me is the way in which the themes of the story parallel the themes of Gatsby and and they are both stories about mistaken identity they are both stories about social mobility they are both stories about class resentment they are both stories about adultery they are both stories about I mean so it's like okay yeah there there are other stories that could do that but this one did it um, in exactly the moment at where the uh, the the story of Gatsby ends. The the story of Hall Mills begins in September 1922, and it is the day after Scott and Zelda return to New York and start the. Or sorry, it's the day before uh, they get on the train to uh, to go back to New York and start the parties. That then we and everybody knows that part of the story that Scott and Zelda go to Long Island and that those parties are are inspiring the Great Gatsby. And there's this parallel story that's happening at exactly the same time. So but I thought it was worth telling. I, I, I mean, I totally hear what you're saying in t about theme, and I and I, t I think that the, uh, the these murders are very interesting, but the same time it's sort of like let's say someone were you or I were to write a novel about abuse mm. and some scholar 50 to 60 years from now were to go ahead and say oh well clearly the protagonist is based off of Dylan Farrow mm. or mm. Woody Allen mm. I mean I, I'm wondering why in in exploring the theme you had to have a kind of hard example here well because it's, it's very a, loose because it's because it's nonfiction <laughs> um, and so I there it's it's trying to find history it's trying to find a story that would uh, explore some of the same themes and ideas. It is, that's not the same thing as arguing that The Great Gatsby is based on Hall Mills. I say point blank that I don't think that it is. I say that point blank at the end of Chapter 8, um, that it is not in any meaningful way based on a true story. The Great Gatsby is a work of fiction and a work of art. But what I'm trying to do is a work of nonfiction that shows us, as I say, what that world looked like. So it, 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 that's not 
to make an argument saying this is, I mean, I'm perfectly capable of making that assertion if I wanted to. I didn't make the assertion because I don't think it's true. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not, that there isn't a story here that's worth excavating, it seems to me. Um, and as I say, what, what I'm really trying to do is to get us to understand the world of 1922 better, to understand the world that produces the Great Gatsby. And it seemed to me that the Hall Mills murder was very instructive. And I do think it's something that Fitzgerald had in his mind somewhere. Too many of the details make their way in. Um, is it consciously based on the Hall Mills murder? Of course it isn't. Of course not. We know it's not. <laughs> and it's, there's, there's no doubt about that. But that's not what I, I, I don't think that that means that therefore there's nothing to be gained from thinking about The Great Gatsby in the context of this true story, which, as I say, helps us understand things about 1922 that I think we've forgotten. So I have to ask you about serving as Booker Judge. You're mm. here in the first year where we Yanks finally get to raid the <laughs> great uh, English castles. Mm. Uh, and here you are actually kind of hovering both sides uh, of the Atlantic. So uh, what's going on with this? I mean, are you being hit with endless packages at this point? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah a whole yeah, lot of books. Yeah, I got a yeah, whole yeah, lot of yeah. books. Um, I'm reading a lot. And um, the it's it's a, it's really interesting. I mean, we read about, we're going to read about 150 books um, by the end of the process. And so I think, you know, I'm going to have a real sense of what what the landscape of contemporary fiction looks like, which is which is a great thing for somebody who likes to read. Um it's a, obviously, for me personally, it's an honor to be a, a judge in the first year that Americans are on the list. There is another American on the, on the jury panel as well, a woman called Erica Wagner, who also lives yeah. in London and uh, was the editor of um, the, the literary editor at uh, the Times, London Times. Um, so they're, they're the two of us kind of, you know, uh, uh, keeping an eye out for the Americans. And I think one of the reasons that they wanted Americans on the panel was people with an understanding of American literature yeah. so that we would understand the context in which these books uh, are produced and, and also be able to judge, you know, them in terms of, say, historical fiction or, you know, in terms of their innovation or are they, you know, um, because we would understand their, their genealogy and their lineage better than than uh, than people who, who haven't immersed themselves in American literature. Um, I think that, you know, what we realized uh, very early on is that uh, we're not going to be able to win. Um, because if we choose an American book, we're going to be accused of, yeah. uh, you know, of rolling over before the American juggernaut. And uh, Eric and I, I'm sure, will be accused of, you know, having uh, pushed through an American book. But if we choose a non-American book, we'll be accused of, you know, pandering. Of, of, exactly. We'll be accused <laughs> of pandering to, to Middle Englanders, you know, resistance to the idea of Americans taking over the country. So once you realize you can't win, yeah. that actually liberates you. And so there's no point in second guessing the process. So our job is to read 150 books and choose the best one. One of them, in our opinion, and yeah. that's what we're going to do. Well, there's also the long list, and if the long list reflects a suitable balance, I mean, are you planning on doing anything to uh, to combat? I mean, there have been a lot of op-ed articles about how dare the Americans invade the Booker. This is ours. Certainly have been. I, I mean, you know, I mean, is the finalist list going to uh, uh, present a kind of, I suppose, fair divide between Anglo-American no. relations? No, no, it's really not. We are going to. We've all agreed this. We well. are, and it's our remit. Um, the the job is clear. The job is to try to pick the best book of the year. And um, the best book in English that was that was uh, published in the the calendar period, the census period, and so we are to the best of our ability. There are six of us. We all have different opinions. We've already had some meetings, so we know that we have different opinions. Um, and to the best of our ability, we're going to try to choose. Um, they they call, I love it. They call it the Booker's Dozen. It's usually yeah. twelve or thirteen on the on the long list. And so we are going to try to choose the books that we all think are the best twelve or thirteen. I think that we're going to. Um, We've already agreed that we're, we're 
we're all opposed to the idea of uh, choosing a book that is, you know, uh, and people accuse juries of doing this sometimes of, of of choosing a book that is that is innocuous because the you know three of you love one book and three of you love another book and so you end up on one that nobody really loves at all as as a compromise and and I don't think any of us wants to do that. I think we're all you know some people people get very cynical about this sort of thing. The thing is, it's a lot of work yeah. and and we wouldn't do it if we didn't believe in it. You know, so we're we're just reading these novels into the best of our ability, choosing the books that we think are the best ones. I mean, we're still very early in the process. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I don't have any sense of what the uh, of what the actual uh, final long list. I, I couldn't possibly know. We've got we've got loads of books still to come in. But um, but I am I am confident that what it will not be, even if it looks like that, it none of us are setting sitting down and saying we need to have some kind of distribution or something. It could be an entire. You know, I don't know if you saw the Folio Prize, um, which is the other I big did, prize, yeah. just announced its list, and it's very American heavy. But it's it's not necessarily the people the Americans that people expected to see on the list. Yes. So a lot of people thought you know that Donna Tart was going to be on. That list, and she's not. And then there's speculation about why she's not, and I don't know what the answer is. Um, so the uh, you know the the question of uh, of which books will make it is. I can assure everybody um, is only going to be answered in the judgment of these six people on the basis of what we think the best book is. But if the long list ends up being mostly American or mostly British, you could have an opportunity here to absolutely do something even more shocking than the, what the Pulitzers did <laughs> a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah you know, no winner. Yeah. Exactly. I, th- I think we're unlikely to do that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I personally would. Uh, the yeah, I thought that was a. I mean, I, pr- I sure shouldn't criticize the Pulitzer Committee, but. Um, but you know, I feel like as a, as a lover of books and as somebody who thinks that the world can only be improved by more people reading, the idea of deciding that that in a given year there wasn't a good book yeah. seems to me an extraordinary message to send out to people. So, and as I say, our our job isn't to find, um, isn't to hold out for a masterpiece. It would be great if we found one, um, but our job is to choose the best of the books that we have. It's comparative to some degree. So we will choose a winner because we will choose the book that we think is the best of the 150 that we read. Um, whether it will be a masterpiece for the ages, you know, only time will tell. It would be great if that turned out to be true. But even if it isn't, we can still say we think this is the best book out of the 150 that we read. Yeah. I, we, we will have an answer. Well, Sarah, I feel very guilty cutting into your reading time. This has been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time out. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank Fantastic. you very much. All right.